Our scripture this morning is found in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 26, beginning with verse 19 through 32. And this is an account of the Apostle Paul, who is a, a prisoner being held at Caesarea by the sea. Um, it's a, his account of, of, of defending his ministry uh, before uh, Festus, who was the Roman governor over the area, and King Agrippa, who was a Jewish man uh, who had been appointed by Rome over the Holy Land. And so I want you to listen to uh, Paul's defense of his ministry, his testimony, if you will, of his life and what Jesus Christ has done for him. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them, and when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing, deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and open our hearts and minds to the truth of, of God's Word. Make these scriptures come alive in us. Uh, convict us of our sin. Convince us of their truth and empower us. Lord, empower us, Holy Spirit, to be faithful followers of Jesus in the days ahead. In this we pray in His name. Amen. Well, not everybody knows this about me. Um, even though I've been here with you all now, what, 12 and a half years? This may be a surprise to some of you, but, uh, but I don't like horses. Okay? 
I mean, don't hold this against me because I know many of you actually love horses. Michelle loves horses, don't you, Michelle? Yeah, her daughter, Michelle. Jeremy's daughter, too. Uh, she loves horses. A lot of you, in fact, your vocation is related to caring for, doctoring, looking after, or racing horses. My dad, who is 82 years old, bought two horses earlier this year. I think he forgot how old he is. He has it in his head he wants to ride horses, but um, he's not really able to get up on a horse without help now, so he had a platform with steps built so that he can go up on it and then just kind of slip onto the back of the horse. I think he bought these horses for the same reason that some people buy a dog. Uh, it's his pets. His horses are his pets. Um, why don't I like horses? I mean, Connie likes horses. Uh, my dad has always liked horses. But I finally figured it out this week when I recalled an episode from my past. I suffer from equinophobia. It's a real word. Look it up. Equinophobia. I am afraid of horses. And I think for good reason. When I was 20, 28 years old, I was pastoring my first appointment of two rural United Methodist churches in Tennessee. Uh, I suffered trauma on the back of a white horse. Put this picture up on the screen there for us, Daniel. That's me um, back in 1984 on the back of this wild horse that belonged to the lay leader of the church at the Burge Memorial United Methodist Church. Um, I did some crazy things when I was a young pastor that seemed like good ideas at the time. This was not one of them. Uh, we were celebrating the 200th anniversary, the bicentennial of American Methodism in 1984. And I decided to celebrate by dressing up like John Wesley, the 18th century cleric, uh, prophet, evangelist, um, who founded the Methodist movement. So um, I decided to, to dress up in a costume, which Connie made from a suit that was found at a yard sale or rummage sale. She did some snip here and there, added some flourishes. I put some uh, silver buckles on my slip-on black shoes, and I thought it was pretty convincing. I thought it looked really good. Um, I also had it in my head that I would ride to worship that Sunday on the back of a horse. Now, I, I don't know if this uh, was a girl horse or a boy horse, I mean, I know how to find that out, but I just don't remember. And it really doesn't matter because this horse, this horse knew that I didn't know how to drive a horse. I'd never been taught how to ride a horse. And he figured or she or it figured this out pretty quickly. In a matter of seconds, this horse had me in the fence row on the side of the road that led down to this little church. Um, he was raising his front legs. He was snorting and making all kinds of threatening sounds. This horse was determined to put a stop to this spectacle. And I was in full agreement. I just didn't want it to happen the way he or she was trying to make it happen. But the horse's owner, who happened to be the lay leader in the church, thought this was very funny. 
In fact, someone told me after the first service, I think it was a setup, Pastor. And it probably was. Um, like a group of hens, um, you know, cackling on the side. The congregation of this little church stood outside just laughing. And they thought it was so funny that I was about to lose my life on the back of a horse. And... Um, Finally, the son of the lay leader, the son-in-law of the lay leader, had mercy on me and helped me down. And when I got off, I was just trembling with fear. It's a wonder I could even preach. But there is more to this story. Uh, riding that horse was the first crazy thing I did, which I've never done since then. The second was preaching one of John Wesley's original sermons. Um, after reading several possibilities from this very book, I went to the bookstore. I've got the date when I bought it in 1984, and I bought John Wesley's 53 sermons. These are 53 of his most famous sermons. And, I mean, it's a thick book, and there's just 53 in here. He was a long-winded preacher. You think I'm bad? You ought to read Wesley's sermons. Fine print. Many, many pages. And, and I picked out number two in the book. And it's interesting, as I was looking at it again this morning, uh, that sermon is highlighted in, uh, with, a, with a pink highlighter. There's places where I kind of X'd out segments because it was just too long. I couldn't preach that whole sermon to my church. So I edited down the message. But even with extensive editing, the sermon was too long and too boring. I mean, my 20th century congregation... We're accustomed to stories and an occasional joke. John Wesley's sermon was, was dry as dust. And so as I got into the sermon, I noticed that there were people whose heads were starting to bob and their eyes were glazing over. And a couple of the older members began to fall asleep. They loved the, the wig I was wearing and the little wire rim glasses and my fake English accent. I know they loved it. It was very convincing. Um, and they especially liked me riding to church on the back of a horse. But the sermon, not so much. Uh, I didn't do that again either. Now, it's unfortunate that, that the sermon was not appreciated at that moment because actually it's a very powerful message even for today. You put a few stories in it, maybe a joke or two, and it would be worth preaching here this morning. But, but it was preached at age 38. It had been about three years since John Wesley had had this, this experience at a little chapel on Aldersgate Street in London, England. Wesley was the son of a clergyman. He had a godly mother. He had many, many siblings, over a dozen brothers and sisters. He was raised in a godly home. But as John Wesley soon discovered as a young man, there was something lacking in his life. I mean, he was living by the rules, trying to be obedient to God's commands. Uh, he stayed out of trouble. Uh, he was very disciplined in his approach to his spiritual life, but his heart felt cold. And during this experience at this, this chapel at Aldersgate, after which many Methodist things are named, including our camp here in Kentucky, uh, his heart was strangely warm. Some say it was at that moment when Wesley, in his own words, did trust in Christ and Christ alone for his salvation. He was born again. He experienced a conversion. So three years pass and he is preaching at uh, 
the Church of St. Mary the Virgin at Oxford University, this 500-year-old church at that time, a place where he had preached before, he is preaching to this congregation now, three years after he had developed quite a reputation in England. And it was not so good. He was abused, he was distrusted, and he stood and preached from this very passage I just read, Acts chapter 26. This encounter that that Paul had with those two Roman governors and the king Agrippa II. Now in Acts 25, Paul tells his, his testimony, his conversion story with great skill and with power and conviction. Uh, He tells about how two years earlier he had been severely persecuted by the Jewish authorities when he had brought that offering from the churches in Asia to help the suffering believers in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church. When he arrived, there was a firestorm that erupted and there was a false accusation that he had tried to take a Gentile into the temple, into the temple courts that were reserved only for the Jews. Paul was hated and despised by his own people, especially the religious leaders who saw him as a, as a heretic, uh, who had abandoned his, his uh, rigorous Jewish upbringing and education as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And so he was stripped and beaten. He was thrown into jail. And there was a plot arranged, a conspiracy to have him murdered as he was brought yet again before the Sanhedrin. But the word leaked out and the Romans rescued Paul, took him into custody and escorted him down from Jerusalem, which is on a mountain in in the Judean hills, to the coastal area at the Mediterranean at Caesarea by the sea, a place that we'll be visiting on our pilgrimage in just a few days. And there Paul was held prisoner as the Romans tried to decide what to do with him. And periodically there would be some Jews come down from Jerusalem who would make a case once again that Paul be executed, that he'd be turned over to them or put to death for his crimes. But frankly, um, Festus and Felix and King Agrippa, they, they saw no reason for such a sentence. In fact, some didn't think he deserved to be in jail at all. But Paul, Paul appealed to Caesar. He had that right as a Roman citizen to have a hearing in Rome. And so this is how Paul ended up in Rome uh, sometime later and of course was martyred for the faith. Uh, At one point in his testimonial to King Agrippa, uh, Agrippa, who, who clearly had compromised his own Jewish faith with this dual allegiance to Rome as, as a Roman representative uh, in the midst of this occupied nation of Jews. King Agrippa says to Paul, he says, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now whether that was an earnest confession or some kind of derisive comment, we don't know for sure. But, but with his Jewish background, his understanding of the prophets and what it meant to be a Jew, uh, Paul appealed to him in his testimony and he made it very clear to him, you understand that the Christ was to come. You understand these prophecies 
uh, these foretellings of, of God's spokesman in the past. And, and I'm here to tell you that Jesus, this man Jesus, that the Jews crucified and who was raised from the dead, this Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. And so Agrippa says, hmm, you've almost persuaded me to become a Christian. And Paul gladly admits that he does indeed wish for Agrippa and everyone who hears his voice to become believers, to become Christians. He says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Now John Wesley seized upon that one verse, verse 29, about the almost and the altogether Christian, and preached this very uh, controversial and provocative message at Oxford that day in 1741. Wesley described persons who on the surface had all the outward appearance of Christianity. Um, you know, they were rule abiders, they lived godly, upright lives, they regularly attended church, they abstained from bad behavior, they tried to do their best. But as commendable as these persons were, the early Methodists, starting with John Wesley and Charles Wesley, both believed that there was a form of godliness at work there that really had nothing to do with the depths of one's heart. Uh, what was lacking was a deep and abiding love for Jesus. The early Methodists believed that Jesus wanted your whole heart. The Methodists today still need to believe in a wholehearted commitment. Not being almost Christian, marginally Christian, Christian in appearance in terms of external activity, uh, and behavior, but one whose heart was deeply surrendered and yielded to God. The question that Wesley asked, is it possible that God has given you His Holy Spirit, that He's empowered you, that, that He has gifted you in such a way uh, that, that He has something extraordinary in mind for you, not something ordinary? Um, this emphasis on a personal conversion of a wholehearted commitment to Christ is something that, that was an early mark of Methodism and needs to be held onto tightly for us today. God wants nothing less than your whole heart. In this sermon that Wesley preached, he called followers of Jesus to do more than live an almost life. Now you stop and think about that phrase, an almost life. I mean, the people that rise to the top, the people that are successful, that we admire, whether it's in um, sports or uh, in business or in community or church leadership, are people that, that are sold out. People who are all in. People who have a fire in their bellies. Those are the people that really change the world. E even Mother Teresa, in her quiet way, over you know, a period of many decades, until her death uh, over 20 years ago, Mother Teresa had this kind of wholehearted develop, uh, 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 dedication to Jesus. And, and Wesley calls these kinds of individuals people that are living an altogether life. 
He says for us, based on the teachings of Scripture, that the first and foremost thing we must do is to love God. Love God, he says, in our whole heart. He says, as engrosses the whole heart. And I love this image. As it rakes up, so appropriate for this time of the year, as, as rakes up all the affections, as fills the entire capacity of the soul and employs the utmost extent of all its faculties. In other words, all of our intellect, our giftedness, our life experience, everything we are is all gathered up together and offered to God that He may use us uh, in every way possible to advance His kingdom and to build Christ's church. So this full love, this, this full-throated confession of faith which holds nothing back, was number one. And the second thing he calls them to is to fully love others, especially those persons that have wronged us. Persons that, that, uh, that we have wronged. To live in love with one another. And then thirdly, he calls them to have a full trust and confidence in God so that, so that the faith of their life is not just an intellectual conviction, something up here, it, it is wholehearted. As, as we see there in our scripture printed on the order of worship this morning, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Matthew 22.37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Um, Psalm 119.10 says, with my whole heart I seek you. Uh, this is the, the mindset of a person with altogether faith, not almost Christian, altogether Christian. And if this seems formidable to you, it should. Biblical Christianity is, is much greater, much bigger, uh, much more impactful than American civil religion, where we expect people to kneel at the cross and stand for the flag. And that makes you a good Christian. If all that constitutes the Christian faith in America today is some good deeds, occasional worship at church, uh, sincerity of heart, and patriotism, then I believe John Wesley would say you're an almost Christian. You are not altogether Christian. The gospel calls us to a different kind of life. And it involves sacrifice. Uh, it involves the deployment of, of our resources, our tithes and our offerings and our spiritual gifts and our life experiences and our hospitality. Everything that makes you the unique person that you are is given over to Christ so that he may use your life to advance his kingdom and build his church. I've, I've included in the bulletin this morning, hopefully everyone got this little insert are you almost or altogether Christian? These 25 questions that are on this, this sheet of paper, and if you did, did you get them in your bulletin? Okay, good. These 25 questions are updated just a little bit in more contemporary language, but they come right out of this sermon that John Wesley preached at Oxford that day. It's amazing to me how much he talks about the blood and about the cross and the atonement. Uh, the forgiveness that God offers us in Christ, but he talks about love over and over and over again. 
So that love becomes um, a high mark of your life. That people see you first and foremost as a person who loves God with all of his or her heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Ultimately, Wesley concluded this sermon with a paragraph, and I want you to listen to it. He says this, May we all thus experience what it is to be, not almost only but altogether Christians being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus, knowing we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and having the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost given unto us. As I was working on this sermon this week, I remembered preaching a similar sermon to this um, over 30 years ago in the Summerfield United Methodist Church in Tennessee. I was about 30 years of age, I think, and, and I was calling people to a wholehearted, altogether Christian life. Not an almost Christian life, uh, but, but a, a, a full-throated confession of faith. And, and I kind of sensed... My notes on the sermon afterwards were that it didn't look like people were appreciating everything I said. Now, I don't know if I said it with a little anger in my voice, if it came across as I was talking down to people. You all know me well enough, surely, that uh, you know this prayer, this Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that. And we're, we're on level ground together, right? Uh, on level ground together at the foot of the Christ uh, of the cross, but apparently some people were offended by that. Maybe I don't know. It just it didn't seem like it was very well received. But several weeks later, there was a knock at the parsonage door on a Sunday afternoon, and it was Wanda Fuquay. Uh, Wanda had been in church that Sunday, and she had draped over her arms this beautiful hand crocheted multicolored afghan that she had made as a gift to me in appreciation for that particular sermon. I've never had anybody since give me a gift for a sermon I've preached. I will gladly receive them. I'm just putting you on notice. Got a few more months left here. But here she was with this beautiful afghan that she presented to me, and she began to tell me with tears in her eyes... That, that she had been a lifelong church member, she had had a godly mother, she had tried to live by the rules and, you know, be a good Christian. But she realized on that particular Sunday that she had never surrendered her life to Christ. That she didn't know Jesus personally. And so on that Sunday, she gave her heart to Him. She was no longer almost Christian. She was altogether Christian. Now, I am convinced that there's someone, maybe several someone, sitting here in these pews today that fall into that kind of category. For some reason, you've held back part or perhaps all of your life from Christ. Uh, you're going through this the motions, this form of godliness that Paul writes about in the New Testament that Wesley seized upon so often in his preaching. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says this. This is such a powerful verse and it's one that I've come back to many times over the years. Started out many years ago when I found it for the first time in Bible college. But listen to what Paul says. 
and see if the Spirit is speaking to you. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. So my challenge to you would be to take these 25 questions into your prayer closet, your place of private devotion, put it in your Bible, uh, tape it up in a prominent place, and reflect, prayerfully reflect on each one. What is your answer? What is the condition of your heart? Are you almost Christian? Or are you altogether Christian? Would you pray with me? Lord, we... We want to be sold out for you. We, we want our lives to demonstrate a madness to the world so that people think we're kind of insane and crazy, that we love Jesus so much, that we are so committed to his purposes, that we're so eager to give our faith away and our resources away and our time away. Uh, we, we want people to look at us, Lord Jesus, and, and see you to see a heart that is ablaze, that has been strangely warmed and set afire by a passion for you and for your purposes. Come, Holy Spirit, come. You, you know who needs to respond to this message today. Move in all of our lives as we surrender every aspect of our personhood, um, and of our day-to-day lives to you. For we love you, and we have committed our lives to following you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.